This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. For the ancient Greeks, sirens were mythical creatures who sang out to passing sailors from rocks in the sea. Their music was so beautiful, it was said, that sailors were powerless against it. They would turn their ships towards these sea nymphs and crash into the reefs around them. In Homer's Odyssey, there's a story where Odysseus and his men are traveling near an area that sirens are known to inhabit. And Odysseus knows that if he hears the siren's song, his ship is going to sink. But he still wants to hear what they sound like, so he comes up with a plan. Odysseus has his men tie him to the mast so that he can't take control of the ship. Then Odysseus has his men fill their own ears with beeswax so they can't hear anything. The plan works. Odysseus gets to hear the siren's call. His men don't. And they sail on to safety, with Odysseus pleading with his crew to crash the boat the whole way. And for over 2,000 years or so, that's what a siren was. A creature that made a beautiful sound. That all changed in 1819, when a French engineer named Charles Cagnard de la Tour decided to call the artificial noisemaker he was working on, the siren. And this new mechanical siren became one of the signature sounds of the modern world. Sirens warned people about imminent bombing raids during World War I. Sirens announced incoming fire engines and ambulances and police. Thanks in part to the siren, the world of the early 20th century had become a lot louder than any time in human history. And we can probably assume that these sirens that people heard in cities all over the world sounded nothing like the siren songs of Greek myth. At least to most people. One man, a composer named Arseny Avramov, heard music in the cacophony of the modern world, and he tried to create a composition, a symphony, from the clatter of the newly formed Soviet Union. In this little bit of a departure from the typical 99% Invisible program, Moscow-based producer Charles Maines investigated the legend of Avramov and his forgotten masterpiece. And then we're going to follow that up with a classic 99% Invisible about Soviet design. But first... This is the Symphony of Sirens, revisited. So here's what I know. In November of 1923, a man named Arseny Avramov will climb onto a rooftop in central Moscow. He will be holding two flags. But the day will be November 7th, and the Soviet Union, the USSR, will be celebrating its sixth anniversary, the birthday of the one and only Bolshevik Revolution. This man, Avramov, is a communist. He's also a composer of music. And there on this roof near the Kremlin, he will link the two with what might sound like a strange idea. He'll conduct a symphony made up of an entire city. He will call this symphony the Symphony of Sirens. Let's be clear, this isn't his first time. But it will be his most important attempt so far. Soviet big leagues, so to speak. So this is what I know about Aramov. This is all I know, and I know what I know from a different man, the man I'm going to see now. His name is Andrei Smirnov. He is a man who studies these things, a man who writes about these things. He is a man who can answer what have clearly now become our common questions. (laughs) Or so I thought. Even Smirnov said it was impossible to classify Avramov. He told me Avramov was from a Cossack family and had worked for the circus. 
He was a fountain of ideas, a ladies' man. And if he couldn't be pinned down in his personal life, it was even more so with his work. In one sense, they call him a composer. Yes, he was a composer. He studied music for a few years. But I, like most people interested in Avramov, know very little about his music, because almost none of it survived. So you could say there was this split between his experiments, his ideas about the future of music, music that was never written down, and the music he made to survive, the music he made to make money. So to talk about what kind of music he wrote or would have written if that music would have survived, Well, we just don't know. So yes, he's a composer, but he's a composer based on myth. The myth in part was based on a flair for the dramatic. Early on, he'd nicknamed himself Rev Ars Avra, the revolution of Arsenio Vramov. He had friends too, poets, engineers, musicians, cinematographers. In the first decades of the 20th century, they dreamed up ideas about the future. With the arrival of the revolution, Avramov and the others set out to turn them into reality, new art for a new world, with support, Smirnov told me, from the Soviet elite. He had very strong support from on high. He had support from Trotsky. And as far as I know, Lenin supported him, or at least he tolerated it all. He tolerated this culture of crazies as part of creating this new future. These artists, avant-gardists and poets would teach the peasants and workers about the future of art. Along the way, Avramov would develop far-reaching theories that would sketch out the concepts of electronic music, biomechanics, early use of sound in cinema. And then there was the Symphony of Sirens, Avramov's music of the future. The reason I'd come. Archival footage of parades from Red Square that day, November 1923, showed clear skies, a cold fall day. It was the first time, apparently, the Kremlin had been filmed from an airplane. Going through the tape, I couldn't find any evidence of Avramov. But the irony, Smirnov told me, was that the pilot may have been the only one who could make sense of Avramov's performance below. The performance of the symphony went largely unnoticed because demonstrations were going on at the same time on Red Square. Airplanes were flying overhead and most people probably didn't realize the sirens were their own event. Moscow is a big city, but even for the people who were there, the sound was so loud it blew them off their feet. So the performers didn't understand. Those who were there to listen couldn't hear a thing. And nobody had even the slightest understanding of what was going on. I'd learned one other detail that day. Although no recordings of the 1923 performance existed, a young composer in St. Petersburg had staged a Rama symphony just a few years back. 
I bought a ticket and caught the first train out of town. Это, это не маленькое пространство, да, но это ничтожное пространство по сравнению с тем, какое пространство использовал Авраам. Да? I tracked down Sergei Hismatov in the Peter Paul Fortress, where he played a recording of the sirens to an unsuspecting public. Hismatov told me that Avramov believed every city had its own symphony. For St. Petersburg, Sergei had constructed his version according to Avramov's own notes from the 1923 score. Симфония Гудков сохранилась на Арказе, мы можем читать на Арказ, мы можем, в принципе, себе уже представить и даже примерно услышать в голове, если хорошо работает фантазия. With the Symphony of Sirens, a detailed description remains. So we can read it and hear what it might have sound like in our heads. It tells us the order of everything. When to turn on the sirens, when the cannons should fire, what should go after what. It's all spelled out and written down clearly. And it's obvious why Avramov did it this way. So that the symphony could be played not only by musicians, but by any person who knew how to read. Kismatov spliced together sounds beginning with Avrama's so-called magistral, a set of steam whistle sirens constructed to play the workers' hymn, the Internationale. Then he added revolutionary choirs, then planes, horns, whistles, machine guns, more horns, soldiers. You get the idea. Collectively, they formed a sort of industrial hymn to Soviet achievement, with the city united as audience, performer, and stage. In Avramov's telling, the siren call to work, once so oppressive, had become something to celebrate in the workers' state. It was the music of the future, signaled by the cannon's roar. Время он сам там стоял на вышке и флагами командовал, когда пушки стреляли. During the performance of the sirens, Avramov was up on the rooftop with the flags, telling the cannons when to fire. Раз, два. One, two, three siren horns were to sound off after the firing of the first cannon, each siren a little different in tone. And then this triumphant sonar was to ring out for another three minutes, accompanied by bells. It was loud, his mod have conceded, and the sirens scared the tourists. We continued our walk around Peter Paul Fortress when, unexpectedly, we came across an exhibit for the American composer John Cage. An avant-garde artist who'd heard music and the sounds of the environment around him. To my mind, Cage was Avramov, born a few years later and with a different passport. The coincidence was odd. We entered and found Elena Nikolaevna. It doesn't move me, she said. In her view, Cage's biggest offense was his most famous work, four minutes and 33 seconds, in which no notes are played for that duration. The song consists of whatever sounds are around you at that moment. Elena Nikolaevna had lasted four minutes before she gave up. Better they pay me 150 rubles, she said. I suggested there might be other American composers more pleasing to her tastes. No, thank you, she said. Not if that meant more the likes of John Cage. 
But Cage's ideas weren't new, I mentioned. The Russian avant-garde had explored these same ideas in the 20s. Kismarov told her about Avramov's idea, about the symphony of sirens, the symphony for every city. Yes, she said, Petersburg sings. Our city is a symphony. As if it was the most obvious thing she'd ever heard. Back in Moscow, I found myself reviewing the archival tapes from Red Square again. I still couldn't find Avramov, but this time I was struck by something else. A simple idea, really. You can never go back to the beginning. The faces on Red Square that day were full of excitement for a new country. There were literally boys on bicycles. But soon they would grow up, go to war, and I couldn't help but think that many wouldn't return. For Avramov, November 1923 was the last time he would attempt his Symphony of Sirens. He didn't fall victim to the Soviet repressions, and he didn't die fighting the Nazis. According to Andrei Smirnov, Avramov and others from the avant-garde, they were just forgotten. The country grew up, and the wild ambitions of the 1920s gave way to Soviet officialdom, stagnation, and ultimately, cynicism. Проблема в том, что большая часть публики просто не знает даже вообще о не только о существовании, но о самой вообще возможности существования вот чего-то подобного. The problem isn't just that the majority of the public doesn't know about it. It's that they don't know that it even could exist. Russians were convinced long ago that the Soviet Union could not produce anything, that everything good was in the West, and all we could do was make bad copies of everything. But it's not like that. And the history of the 20s and 30s really proves it. But this doubt that Russians have in themselves looms large. That's how we were raised. Hopefully, someday it will change. That night, fireworks rang out over cities all across Russia. It was a holiday I'd almost forgotten. Avramov thought music was the ultimate communal experience, and it was hard not to agree. Here we all were, looking skyward at the drums. But if I closed my eyes and listened carefully, I could hear a car alarm, steps on pavement, laughter. Then I imagined other parts of the city chiming in, crowds gathered in protests, Trains racing in the tunnels, Moscow's never-ending traffic. Just the hum and din of an average day in the city. You didn't have to like Avramov's music of the future to know it was happening. And if I couldn't find the man, well, it was comforting to know the music had never left.
That was the Symphony of Sirens Revisited by producer Charles Maines. That story was part of the Global Story Project presented by PRX with support from the Open Society Foundations. In that piece, there was a mention of Soviet design, and it brought to mind this early episode of 99% Invisible that I'm sure many of you haven't heard. So we thought we'd just tack it on here for fun. The question you have to ask yourself is this. Are you ready to bow down before the glory of Krugazor? This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. My friend Julia Barton. That's me. Is in a New York City apartment with Michael Idov. My name is Michael Idov, and uh, I'm the editor of Made in Russia: Unsung Icons of Soviet Design. And Lawrence, a parrot that sounds exactly like the building's door buzzer. And no matter how hard we tried <laughs> to cut out Lawrence, his door buzzer imitation cannot be denied. But maybe that's okay, because Idov's new book on Soviet design is an homage to the stuff of ordinary Soviet life. Cigarettes, drinking glasses, subway token machines, and it might be hard for outsiders to see what this seemingly random collection of Soviet consumer goods have in common. But Idov believes there's something that unites them all. To define this aesthetic, you first need to realize that most of these items were uh, rip-offs of Western sources, uh, you know, of varying qualities. They are imitations, like the way Lawrence the Parrot is imitating the door buzzer. Shut up, Lawrence. One look at the items in this book, even though they are shameless imitations, you'll see that the Soviet stuff is unmistakably Soviet. Take your Soviet soda machine. In those, carbonated drinks came not in bottles, but straight into a communal drinking glass, something chained to the machine. And the excruciating Soviet arcade games were designed by the Committee on Amusement. Most Americans haven't even seen these artifacts, but in a way, we're responsible for them. Basically, it all goes back to the kitchen debates. In 1959, there was this wildly successful American exhibit in Moscow. It's the official opening of the American Exposition, counterpart of the Soviet trade show in New York, and dedicated to showcasing the high standard of life in our country. Vice President Nixon showed Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev around the exhibit, and they stopped in front of a model suburban home to address an audience before new American color TV cameras. There are some instances where you may be ahead of us. For example, in the development of your of the thrust of your rockets for the investigation of outer space. There may be some instances, for example, color television, where we're ahead of you. But in order for both of us to do for both of us to benefit, for both of us to benefit, you see, you never concede anything. Michael Adoff says that despite Khrushchev's bombast and the recent success of Sputnik, the Soviets were humiliated by all of America's stuff. Khrushchev decided the Soviet people needed stuff too. But it was a huge struggle for the Communist Party to switch Soviet factories from producing tanks and rockets to cassette decks and hair dryers. Usually the way it worked was, you know, some party guy would uh, would come back from a foreign trip and, and bring in, uh, you know, a German radio and uh, give it to the engineers and say, uh, make one like it. And then uh, they would just reverse engineer it. And then they would look around for, you know, the guy who draws well. And they're like, all right, well, can you draw? Okay, you do the logo. And that would be the logo that would last for the next 40 years. 
The system produced a lot of strange stuff, but sometimes the Soviets did better than the original. Take the unbelievably cool magazine, Krugazor. No, everybody should just bow down before the glory of, uh, of Krugazor. It was supposedly based on something Khrushchev saw while in the United States, a magazine with a record in it. Idov calls it the original podcast. It actually sounds like public radio. That's <laughs> what it is. There would be uh, an article in the magazine and then the contents of the vinyl disc would somehow illustrate the article. You know, there would be uh, the sounds of the, you know, the forest or something like that. Or, or folk songs of, of some uh, far-flung tribe. Or this. What started happening over time was, you know, since uh, the people who made this magazine had access to uh, something, you know, unbelievably awesome for the Soviet Union, which is, you know, vinyl of press. Uh, they started uh, slipping in a little pop music in there. It was the round tear-out discs in Krugazor that gave Russians their first non-bootleg recordings of everyone from Barbra Streisand to Pink Floyd to Michael Jackson. The main thing that unites the designs in Made in Russia is that they're often the only designs. Michael Idov didn't pick from shelf loads of, say, different cassette recorders. Most Soviets had one, the Visna. And the BK Electronica personal computer probably made Russian-speaking hackers the best in the world through its sheer awfulness. Nobody had any other choice. Far be it for me to suggest that this is actually a good thing, but it certainly simplifies uh, getting to know <laughs> one another because if you grew up in the Soviet Union and you're you know, my age or older, I already know so much about you. <laughs> including the song that puts you to bed at night. You know, if you grew up in the Soviet Union, uh, it's just seared into your brain. I, I can I can sing it for you yeah. if you want. How does it go? I think it goes... This theme from a children's puppet show aired every night at 8.15 on Soviet television. You can't really call the crude animal puppets icons of Soviet design, but Idov put them in his book anyway. Because with their bright eyes and worn-out fur, Krusha the pig and Stepashka the bunny represent a lost universe. Eleven time zones closed off from the rest of the world, making their own stuff in their own way. The tired toys are sleeping now. That's how the song goes. Good night, Roman. 99% Invisible is Sam Greenspan and me, Roman Mars. The Symphony of Sirens Revisited was produced by Charles Maines, and the Unsung Icons of Soviet Design was produced by Julia Barton. We're a project of 91.7 local public radio KALW in San Francisco and the American Institute of Architects in San Francisco. Support for 99% Invisible is provided in part by the Facebook design team who believes that design can bring positive change to the world. Visit them at facebook.com design. We are distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange, making public radio more public. Find out more at prx.org. Support is also provided by Tiny Letter, email for people with something to say. This week, cousin Ava has something to say. It's another knock-knock joke. Knock-knock. Who's there? Knock knock. Who's there? Knock knock. Who's there? Knock knock. Who's there? Knock knock. Who's there?
Philip Glass. <laughs> I could have sworn it was Steve Reich. Tinyletter.com. It's free, easy, minimal, and powerful. The simplest way to send an email newsletter. From the people behind MailChimp. You can find the show and like the show on Facebook. I tweet at Roman Mars, but you can find a picture of Avramov with his arms outstretched conducting the symphony of sirens at 99percentinvisible.org. Thank you.